said, thanks for braving the rain and the cold. It is kind of nasty out there, and you made it. You're here, and uh, that's awesome. And uh, if you're new, I uh, just want to welcome you into this season of the year and what we're diving into as a church. My name is Jamie, by the way. I'm uh, the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures as we gather in this place. Uh, last Sunday, if you are new, we began an Advent series, uh, a new series that we're going to walk through all the way up through December 30th this year. And, and I mentioned a few things about Advent last week, particularly for those of us who, like me, either didn't grow up in the church or maybe grew up in a, a less liturgical setting. Maybe you come in and you go, I don't even know what the word Advent means, much less like what we're doing as we come together this time of the year. And so just a few things to recap from last week since the fourth century, uh, post-Jesus' coming, the church has celebrated the season of Advent. It's a celebration that starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas and leads all the way up to Christmas itself. And so last Sunday marked the beginning of Advent 2018 on the church calendar. That word Advent, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival, which makes sense, right? Because the season of Advent is meant to focus on the coming of Jesus into the world, the celebration of his first coming and in the hopeful anticipation of his second coming at the same time, that, that it's a season for the church to place itself in the time in between, the time in between Jesus's birth and the trappings of a smelly stable and his glorious re, uh, return to make everything sad untrue. It's a season to both rejoice and a season to yearn, a season to rejoice and a season to lament the brokenness of the world and, and of ourselves. It's a season to reflect on God making good on his promises in the first coming of Jesus and, and the the hope and anticipation of the promises of God to be fulfilled when Jesus returns to set all things right. We, we talked about this actually as a community group this past week that I think this is a, a real challenge and I even made a Facebook post about this that uh, most of us tend to lean in, in one or the other direction but not the both end. And so um, maybe you come in and you're the kind of person that says, um, I'm all about rejoicing this time of year, so please don't bring your sorrow and sadness into my you know, concentric circle because I wanna experience nothing but joy until December 26th when we all you know, grieve and are sad that Christmas is over. And, and then there are others of us who, because of what we've gone through in life, because of the story that we bring to the table, this is a really difficult time of year. And so we experience great sorrow and, and we tend to push people to the margins who are filled with joy, who, who find a way to rejoice this time of year. And, and yet Advent is kind of a both and. It's, it's the tandem engine jets of, of both joy and, and yearning. Somehow we're meant to experience both, which seems emotionally impossible, right? How do we do that? And yet with God, all things are possible. And so we come in to this time of year hoping to experience both. The hope of Advent is that you and I wouldn't go through the next several weeks indifferent to God's present, caught up in the motions of a bunch of dead, you know, empty, ritualistic, religious practices that somehow seek to keep God at bay in the midst of it all, but rather that we would invite God to both break in and break through, awakening our hearts to, to the beauty of who he is and exactly what, what it is that he's done for us. As a framing of this series last week, I shared this quote with you and I'll I'll share it again this week. Robert Weber in his book, Ancient Future Time, he says, 
The danger we all face as we prepare for the future is the tendency to be indifferent to the presence of God in our plans. We participate in that humanistic spirit prevalent in our Western world, a spirit that often expresses itself in the way we plan for the future. When we think that we can do things on our own, we act as though we have little or no need of God. Then we become self-confident. We begin to believe in ourselves and think ourselves to be invincible. When this happens, God becomes remote and even absent from our lives. We may go for days without concern to hear God speak to us through his word. At the same time, the religious practices in which we engage, prayer before meals, attendance at Sunday worship, take on a ritualistic and somewhat meaningless character. We do them as one might run a machine in a mindless job, and they mean little to us. They have no power, and God does not teach us or reach us through them. They have become dead forms, lifeless and without meaning. To say we did not mean for this to happen would be an understatement. None of us wants God to become remote or removed, he says, from our lives. Nevertheless, God sometimes becomes distant. He goes on to say, Perhaps we cannot trace back to the point at which we became spiritually indifferent, but we know the aliveness to God we once had is dissipated and is now lost in our personal experience. Perhaps we have not chosen to let God be in our lives. We we live quite comfortably with God at a distance. At times like these, our personal experience is akin to Israel's before the birth of Christ. Here's where he brings Isaiah into the quote. He says, it is also similar to the condition of the world today, a world that is still largely indifferent to its creator the one who alone can give it meaning and purpose. Our lives, as well as those of Israel, the church, and the world, pass through rhythms of cold indifference. And then, and then God breaks into our lives and we become open and receptive. In the twists and turns of these alterations, we're called to a new awareness of life, to new commitments, to a new conversion of the soul. Whenever this happens, he says, an advent has occurred. For Advent is the time when God breaks in on us with new surprises and touches us with a renewing and restoring power. And so as I mentioned last week, and I'll say it again, my prayer uh, this Advent season is that God does a little interfering in your life and in my life in our families, that he, that he breaks through, that he shatters our complacency, that he rescues us from whatever spiritual apathy is there, that he leads us to declare this Advent season with the fullness of heart, glory to God in the highest, that we could declare those words and, and truly mean it. And so it's with that said that I invite you to open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be in the first 10 verses of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible There should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible um, or you come in with a translation that's a little difficult to track with, uh, consider that the church's early Christmas gift to you. Let me me pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in. God, you've called us to the seemingly emotionally impossible to somehow... Rejoice at your first coming, Jesus, the inauguration of your kingdom, the inauguration of the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Somehow we're meant to look at the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and to see the fulfilled promises of God and to celebrate and rejoice. And at the same time, we're meant to yearn and grieve, and long for something better because you have not yet come to consummate that kingdom in its fullness. And so we're still surrounded with things that make this world sad, 
the most glorious happily ever after the world has ever known has yet to come to be. And so, Spirit of God, I pray that you would help us. We're, we're desperate for you if we're to at all experience anything of both a rejoicing and a longing for as a both and in our lives. Would you, would you help us in that regard? Because with you, all things are possible. God, I pray that you're honored as we dive into your word this morning. And I do pray that you would break in and break through, that you would awaken our hearts to something new, uh, perhaps reawaken our hearts to something very old to us, uh, that we would see something of your goodness, glory, and grace in the face of Jesus Christ, the good, perfect, and eternal King this morning. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. So last week, if you... If you weren't with us, we, we began this series by looking at a very famous passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's famous vision of the Lord enthroned in the heavenly places, the king of, of all creation, robed in splendor and majesty, a vision of God and his infinite holiness. It's this encounter that, that opens Isaiah's eyes to the magnitude of his own sinfulness, leaving him desperate for divine intervention, the grace of God, his only hope in this moment which he experiences in his moment of greatest desperation, a burning coal to the lips, Isaiah 6 tells us, his guilt removed, his sin atoned for, which is a foreshadowing of the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's greatest work of divine intervention and atonement. This compels Isaiah to to spend and be spent for God's glory, we're told, as God is no longer a concept in Isaiah's life, but rather a reality and so if, if last week's focus was about the promised cleansing in Christ, this morning's focus is, is on the promised reign of Christ. That, that king on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, his kingdom is the only truly righteous and good eternal kingdom. I think we could all agree that we don't live in a perfect kingdom with a perfect king that we, we long for a better kingdom ruled by a better king than the one that we're a part of right now. That's what chapter 11 is all about, the perfect king of a perfect eternal kingdom. As we'll see in the, in the verses to come here in chapter 11 of Isaiah, this is the kind of king, this is the kind of leader that most people long for, whether they even realize it or not. Verse one begins with these words, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Leading up to, to this morning's passage, Isaiah chapter 10, leading into chapter 11 here, likens God's destruction of, of evil and pride to the chopping down of a, of a massive forest, the leveling of a forest, bringing to bear this question of whether or not there's hope of restoration on the other side of God's judgment of sin and rebellion. That Judah, you could say, has been relegated to a stump and Isaiah speaks of that back in chapter six as well. But it's out of that, that humble obscurity that a shoot would come forth. There's a, there's a stump in the felled forest, you might say, a remnant of God's people. And out of that lowly stump would rise a king from the line of David's father, Jesse, we're told here in verse one, a good king seated on the throne of an eternally good kingdom. At, at the risk of giving away the ending, I think most of you know this, that king is Jesus. Let me just get that out there on the table. John McKay in his commentary on Isaiah 11, he says this. He says, this new growth is not from the stump of David, the remains of the monarchy, 
but from the stump of Jesse, pointing back before the grandeur of the kingdom to the humble obscurity of Bethlehem. From those insignificant beginnings to which the house of David will return, Yahweh will again provide for his people not so much another king from David's line as another David who will eventually become king. In other words, Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, is the declaration that Jesus is the greater David. He's the better king, a shoot, a a sprout, a twig, born in humble obscurity out of the stump of Jesse. His entrance into the world by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem, not Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The humble trappings of a of a smelly stable surrounded by blue-collar field workers, court magicians, and astrologers, which is God's way of saying, I'm not here for those who think they have it together. I'm here for those who are well aware, like Isaiah, that they don't. I'm here to, to use the language of verse one, to bear the fruit that you could never bear, to live the perfect, sinless life that you could never live on your behalf as your good Savior and King. Verse two goes on to say, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We we see the fulfillment of these words in Matthew chapter three, Matthew's gospel account where Jesus is coronated, anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism as the spirit descends on him like a dove and the father declares, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. There's this sevenfold description of the spirit of God in these verses He's the spirit of the Lord. He's the spirit of wisdom. He's the spirit of understanding. He's the spirit of counsel. He's the spirit of might. He's the spirit of knowledge. And he's the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That, that sevenfold description, many theologians argue and believe, is symbolic of the fullness of the spirit. That Jesus' coronation as king is a perfect coronation, which makes perfect sense, right? Because he's the perfect king. Ray Ortland Jr., In his commentary, he says it this way. He says, Jesus does not need our mechanisms for power. He has another way to build the world of our dreams. He has the spirit of wisdom and understanding for leadership, the spirit of counsel and might for war, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord for holiness. Unlike every other human leader in the sorry length of our history, he says, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. We have nothing to fear from him. We are foolish to resist him. We can never be too loyal to him, he says. Hey, don't you want to spend eternity in, in, in a kingdom whose king is wise? In a kingdom whose king understands? In a kingdom whose king is mighty? In a, in a kingdom whose king is holy? If you're a Christian, here's good news this morning. You will forever. And, and even now, There's good news because you have access right now as you sit in your chair to his throne of grace. And so I ask you this morning, are you in need of Jesus's wisdom? Because he has it to dispense. Are you in need of his might in this season of your life? Because he's powerful and mighty to enter in and carry you through anything. That's your king. You can cry out to your wise king this morning, your mighty king this morning, your holy king this morning. Isaiah goes on to say in verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
Holy smokes, we've got to go back through Isaiah in its fullness because I'm just going to leave meat on the bone this morning. I'm sorry. Um, here we see the, the perfect justice of Jesus' kingship and kingdom, that he fights for the cause of truth and, and meekness and, and righteousness, that he, he doesn't step on the weak to establish or exhibit his power, unlike so many leaders today. He, he doesn't, uh, unlike corrupt politicians, take sides with the wicked in order to further his agenda. He doesn't make deals under the table he doesn't judge based on appearances or image, but he looks to the heart of man. And even he himself, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. His decisions and judgments are rooted in absolute perfect righteousness. He's worthy of praise for his military prowess. These verses tell us that in our focus of, on Jesus' meekness and gentleness, we oftentimes forget that he's also our warrior king, that even Jesus' crucifixion was his waging war, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, against and, and disarming the powers of darkness, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in his very death. The author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the, the captain of our salvation, leading us in triumphant procession. procession. He's, a, he's a warrior who, who doesn't miss his mark. He never misses his mark. Under his leadership and authority, his people are protected as his enemies fall. Revelation 19 talks all about it, that Jesus will one day return to judge his enemies in order to create eternal, blissful peace for his followers. That if you're a Christian, you ultimately have nothing to fear under the kingship of Jesus. He's our perfect king in whom we encounter infinite justice and grace, infinite glory and humility, infinite majesty and meekness, that he's both the lion of Judah and he's the lamb who's slain. You talk about a both and that you can't get your mind around. As Jonathan Edwards once said, in Jesus there are an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Some of you have heard this quote before around here. Edward says it this way. He says, there do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet together infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet together, he says, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. There are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In the person of Christ are conjoined an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. In Christ, he says, do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. Behold your king, church in the fullness of his diverse excellencies. You'll spend eternity trying to wrap your mind around those diverse excellencies, and you'll never get bored with it. He's full of grace and truth. He fights for the cause of justice and righteousness. His throne is an eternal throne. That's your king, Christian. That's your king. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our adoration. Verse six goes on to tell us, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If, if verses three through five des- describe the perfect justice of, of Jesus's kingship and kingdom, verses six through nine describe the perfect peace of Jesus' kingship and kingdom. In Isaiah's day, Israel was, was under the threat of Assyrian conquest. And so some believe this prophecy, these verses are a declaration that the nations will be brought to peace under the Messiah's rule, that, that there will no longer be a praying of one nation on, on the other, but rather a, a peaceable dwelling with one another in the eternal kingdom of God. Others believe that, that this is a declaration of the, the reversal of, of the effects of sin's curse, that there's coming a day in which the circle of life itself will look a little different as carnivorous beasts and animals of, of prey coexist in peace in the new Eden, to which I say, I'm not sure you have to pick between the two interpretations, honestly. When God consummates his eternal kingdom of peace, hostility will be no more. And that's both in the rational creation, human beings like you and me, and the non-rational creation, the animal kingdom, that regardless of how you interpret these verses, you have this picture of perfect peace and tranquility. Who who doesn't long for that? Verse nine, no hurt or destruction in the new Jerusalem. And here's why, verse nine says, for, for, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the Lord will be inescapable. You shall see him as he is, like Isaiah in the throne room of heaven. If you're a Christian, that should absolutely thrill you. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, or he asks, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God, John 17, three. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Packer says, what is the best thing in life bringing more joy, more delight, more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. And there's coming a day, according to Isaiah 11, in which the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know if you've ever been on the sea, but the waters cover them quite gloriously. In that perfect, righteous, eternal kingdom of Jesus, our joy will be made complete. No more selfishness and pride. No more backbiting and slander. No more irreconcilable differences. To come back to Ortland and his commentary, he says, when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, The scars of our ugly utopias will disappear forever under the overwhelming healing of Christ. If we bow to the rule of Jesus Christ, he will lead us into everything safe and pleasant with no dark side, no forced laughter, no guilty conscience, no unhealed wounds. The victory of Jesus, and he's talking about a second coming here, by the way, will be the awakening and purifying and restoring and gladdening of all things human. (laughs) Doesn't that sound glorious? That's better than Christmas. Like the, the most incredible happily ever after that the world, the universe has ever known. But here's the flip side. If you're trusting this morning in your own goodness to make you right with God, verse nine should absolutely terrify you. 
no darkened corner of the earth to escape to, no hope of avoiding the kind of encounter Isaiah had with the holiness of God, in a kingdom filled with the inescapable knowledge and holiness and glory of the Lord, how is one not consumed? How is one not incinerated in an instant? And the answer, we talk about it all the time, only Jesus. Going back to last week, Isaiah came face to face with the knowledge and holiness and glory of the Lord, and it wrecked him. It left him desperate for divine intervention, the grace of God, truly his only hope. That Christmas is an indictment before it's a joy. That God came to to us, that he stooped down is a declaration that we couldn't get to him. That we couldn't do enough to bridge the gap between his holiness which we see in Isaiah 6, and our sinfulness, that Christmas is not the celebration of self-rescue. It's the celebration of Jesus Christ, our rescuer, the shoot who came forth from the stump of Jesse to seek and save the lost so that we could live in a kingdom filled with the knowledge of the Lord and not be consumed, but rather enjoy making much of that king forever to the fullness of our delight. Verse 10 goes on to say, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is mind-boggling to me. It says that that Jesus is not only the shoot of Jesse, going back to verse one, but also the root of Jesse. He's not only the descendant of Jesse, the greater David, the better king, but he's also the source of Jesse as eternal God, having no beginning the Alpha and the Omega, that Jesus himself says in the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the root of David, I come before him, I'm the source of his royalty, and I'm the descendant of David, the promised hero who came to crush the serpent Satan's head. I'm the bright morning star, that language pointing back to a prophecy in the book of Numbers of one who would conquer all of his enemies and exercise dominion as the true king, such that Jesus is saying in Revelation 22, I was the king, I am the king, and I always will be the king. Eternal sovereign of the universe. Verse 10, of him shall the nations inquire. Paul actually refers to verse 10 of Isaiah 11 in Romans 15 as he articulates his desire to reach the the Gentiles with the gospel, that the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the king of a multi-ethnic kingdom, a a diverse global citizenship, you might say, that the cultural melting pot of the redeemed gathered together to celebrate and worship the perfect King Jesus. Andrew Davis, in his commentary, he says, people from all over the earth will stream to that banner Loving and worshiping Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all their aspirations for a perfect king and a perfect society. The land he rules will radiate with his glory and all creation will glow with astonishing beauty. Christ will reach out his sovereign hand to gather the scattered children of God and make them one. That he, he really does. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That in his eternal kingdom, a global diverse citizenship shall find their eternal rest. No doubt, Isaiah was certainly looking forward beyond the failed kings and kingdoms of his own day to the coming of a better king, to the establishment of a better, more glorious kingdom. When Jesus came into the world, the king had arrived to inaugurate his kingly rule and kingdom. 
So we celebrate the first coming of King Jesus. But this passage ultimately looks to his second coming, the second advent, when King Jesus shall return to consummate his kingly rule and kingdom forever in the perfect bliss of the new heaven and earth where righteousness and faithfulness and peace shall reign forever. If we're, if we're looking for some sort of utopian society with a perfect government this side of heaven, we're all gonna be sorely disappointed. But... If we look to King Jesus and yearn for him to come and consummate his perfect utopian eternal kingdom, then he will not disappoint. He will never disappoint you. John Piper, in his commentary on Isaiah 11, he says, when all his work of judgment and salvation is done, he will enter his rest, Jesus will, his final home, and one word will describe him and it, glory, This glory, he says, is the sum of all the beauties of his person, all his wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and delight and righteousness and mercy. And this glory is the sum of all of the beauties of not just his person, Piper says, but his work. Nations gathered, Israel restored, curse removed, new heaven, new earth, no harm, no destruction anymore. This is his resting place. Its name will be glory and he will be the center. And for all who have come to the signal, every sorrow will be passed and every joy imaginable will be satisfied in him. We will be home. To which I say, amen, come Lord Jesus. Like before this service is over, you could come. Which comes back to one of the primary focuses of Advent, the yearning aspect. It's a season to yearn. It's a season to lament the brokenness of the world, the brokenness within ourselves. It's a a season to long, to long for this coming king to truly come back and, and consummate everything right and good in the new heaven and earth. And as we wait, as we wait, should he... Should he tarry? Should he not return before we walk out of this building a few moments from now? We we get the privilege of participating in making the descriptors of his kingdom visible even now. Fighting for truth and justice. Caring for the weak and oppressed. Not siding with the corrupt. Surrendering our rights. Laying aside the efforts to build our own kingdoms. Which comes back to that distinction from last week of God as a concept versus God as a reality. If you weren't here, I think this is so significant in framing where we're going this Advent season. When you look at the word glory in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, it actually means weight. It means weightiness. So it's this idea, that if you, to, to illustrate it, if you dropped a weight in a bucket of water, what, what, what always happens is the weight falls to the bottom and the water gets displaced, right? It gets quaked by the weight. God is a concept, is a declaration that we are the weight and he is the water, that he is the one to be displaced by us as we sit at the center. God as a reality is very different. I'll offer you the Keller quote from last week. Tim Keller says, God as a concept is lighter than you. When you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. It fits in around your existing patterns. It doesn't move you around. It doesn't quake you. If you believe in God and it just hasn't changed you very much, it's just a concept. A God concept can't really change your beliefs around. He just fits in with your existing beliefs. You shape the God concept. The God concept doesn't shape you. 
You have more glory, he says, than the God concept. The God concept is lighter. And the God concept not only moves into our existing patterns of our beliefs, but the existing patterns of our agendas and our plans and goals. Plenty of people, he says, try to get religious. They go to church. They start to pray. They read their Bible. Why? Because they need help in getting to their goals. Keller goes on to say, God as a concept is lighter than you, but God as a reality is heavier than you. When the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real God, things give way in your life to his glory. Things that you've always believed and that you believe very, 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 very deeply are changed by his word because God has more glory than your beliefs. He can change things that you think. And also, instead of God being fit into your agenda, God becomes your new agenda. He radically changes your priorities. When God, the reality, comes into your life, all that stuff, he says, starts to change. And so I would say, to, to use the, the angle on Advent of, of the king and his kingdom and his reign, if your life is ultimately about the building of your own kingdom, then God is nothing more than a concept to you. He's lighter than you. He gives way to your glory and your throne when God becomes a reality, it, it makes all the sense in the world to, to bend a knee in joyful submission to him because as we see here in Isaiah chapter 11, he truly is the perfect king worthy of worship. In a few moments, we're gonna worship that king together in a number of ways. We're gonna worship him through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body and dip it in the cup representing uh, his shed blood invite you to just marvel that the king came and the king came the first time to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. And so we remember that the inauguration of his kingdom came through bloodshed as we receive of the elements this morning. There'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with him for you if you'd like to approach the throne of that king, his throne of grace, to cry out to him for his wisdom this morning depending on what you're going through, to cry out to him for his might and power in your life to be displayed, to cry out to him for his counsel, to cry out to him for his understanding. You can come to him, church, even now. He sits on the throne, not, not just as your glorious king, but as your advocate and high priest. And then lastly, we get to worship our king through song, have an opportunity to lift our voices Going back to last week, Isaiah 6, to join in with the angels who cry out, holy, 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 to sing the praises of our good and glorious and righteous and eternal king, to long for him to return to establish his kingdom forever in the most gloriously happily ever after the world has ever known.